Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series through the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're going to be in Luke 15 this morning, if you want to begin turning there. We've said that our, the point of this series is not just to learn quaint stories that Jesus told, but through the stories that he told to get to know who Jesus is, what he offers us, and what life with him and his kingdom is like. And no story uh, reveals that more clearly for us than the story that we will look at this morning. So, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Please join us. Luke 15, 11 through 32. The parable of the prodigal son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to him, said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go. And it his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat, but that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God, absolutely true and given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. This story that we just read is probably the most well-known of Jesus' stories, probably the, the parable that's most worked its way into the popular imagination. It's a story that, that most of us have heard at some point. Uh, the contemporary author Tobias Wolfe, an American, says that this story is undoubtedly the greatest story ever written. 
the greatest story ever told. You know, um, I think that if, you, if someone were to come up to me on the street and just ask me, what do Christians believe? What's the core of the message? If I don't, if I don't have time to read the whole book, right, it's thick, uh, give me the cliff notes. What do Christians believe? Well, I could just give them the Apostles' Creed, right? That's one way of saying what Christians believe, outlining it in propositions. But if you were to tell a story, one story, to encapsulate the heart of the message of Christianity, I think you'd be hard-pressed to do better than this one. What this story tells us is that it, behind all of the other stories, behind all of the other events and actions of God in the world, from Genesis to Revelation, over that whole big story, there's one story about a loving and heartbroken father who longs for intimacy with his children and at great expense to himself goes out to pursue them and to try to gather them back to himself. That that's the story that makes sense of Christmas and Easter, the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection and what we believe about heaven and the end times and all of that. If you take those as isolated bits along the way, they can, they can fail to make sense or they can fail to move us. But if you understand all of that as the movements of a loving father reaching out to gather his children back to himself, then it starts to sing, it starts to hold together, it starts to move our hearts. And that's the story uh, that Jesus tells here. It's a story that's very intimate on the one hand. It probably has more details than any of the other stories that Jesus told. He paints the picture more vividly than in a lot of the other parables. And it's an intimate story. And yet it's a story broad enough and vast enough that we can each find our place in it. We can each find our own way into this story, our own identification within the story, and take away from it uh, both some real challenges and real comfort. And so let's walk through this story, the story that in most of our Bibles is called the prodigal son, uh, perhaps better called the, the lost sons. There's two sons in the story. Maybe even better called the, the story of the loving father, uh, because the father takes center stage in this story. Jesus begins, there was a man who had two sons. There was a man who had two sons. God is a father. Uh, here before the leaving home, here before the broken heart, here before any of that is a father dwelling at, at peace with his children. But that's what God created us for. God created us to be children at the home of a father, to live in peace and unity and love with him. There was a man who had two sons. You know, we should remember uh, from last week, these, this story will pick up on a lot of the themes that we looked at last week with the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. But remember the setting. Uh, look at Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The setting hasn't changed. There's still a crowd around Jesus made up primarily of two different kinds of people. There's the tax collectors and sinners, the notorious outcasts of society, those who had run away from God and made a mess of their life, and who now through Jesus were receiving grace, who were finding a welcome and an invitation back to God. And so these kinds of people were flocking to Jesus. And then there were their critics, 
there were the Pharisees and religious teachers of the day who stood off and grumbled. Remember, we talk, last week I imitated what a grumble sounds like. I don't think we need to do that again. Um, but they just sit back and their hearts are cold and angry as they see these outcasts, these ne'er-do-wells, these people who'd made a mess of their lives coming to Jesus. And so Jesus says there, were a man, there was a man who had two sons. And in the story as it goes on, we're going to see that these two sons represent these two different kinds of people. These two fundamental postures towards God, these ways of relating with God. And so there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So here's the scene, a man with two sons, and the younger one comes to him and says, Dad, give me my part of the inheritance. So that part of your wealth, we think this was a wealthy man in the story, who had a vast estate, says that portion of it that's coming to me, which in all likelihood was about a third. The older son got a double portion, he got two-thirds, the younger son got one-third. He said, give me that part of your estate that's rightfully mine when you die. In other words... I wish you were dead already. I wish you would just go ahead and shuffle off the estate, shuffle off this mortal coil while you're at it, and give me what's mine. I wish that you would get out of the way between me and my inheritance. I wish that you were dead already. So give me my part, and I'll go away, and we don't have to deal with each other again. This was a shocking ask. Everyone in Jesus' audience would have expected the Father to say, son, you've got another thing coming if you think that I'm going to give you a third of everything that's mine. In fact, why don't you leave? You're dead to me. Go. But instead, the father doesn't do that. The father doesn't tell his son uh, to hit the bricks. It says that he took his entire property and divided it between them. Uh, literally, uh, the Greek here is that he divided his life between them. It's bios, the life, what we get biology from. So he took his very life and divided it. Right? Because you have to remember that in these days, for a father to divide up his estate, it wasn't as simple as saying, okay, well, I'll call a good, uh, I'll call a good estate lawyer, uh, and we'll go down to the bank together, and I'll take out your part of it, and I'll give it to you. His life, his livelihood, everything that he owned was wrapped up in land, in crops, in animals, in homes, in possessions. This wasn't an economy that was a cash economy. It was an agricultural economy. So he would have had to take his estate and he would have had to go and figure out the value of every last bit of it and then divide it up, sell it off, divide the estate in order to liquidate it and give it to the son. And so the father divides up his very life, giving uh, his son what's his to send him on his way. There's something about the graciousness of the father, even in the midst of his own heartbreak, right? Even in the midst of this insult, even in the midst of, of one of his two beloved sons leaving home, that even in that moment, his disposition towards the son is grace. Even in that moment, uh, it's not immediate damnation. It's not immediate disownment. But there's a, there's a grace to it, even in that. 
And we see something uh, as we see the father's heart breaking, as we see him dividing his very life between his children. We see something in this younger brother about the nature of sin, about the nature of sin. Look at what he says. One of the words that just stands out in his demand of the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. There's a selfishness to him that just jumps off the page. He's not concerned about his brother. He's not concerned about his father. He's concerned only with himself, only with what's coming to him, only with what's his by right. The Bible calls this fundamental selfishness sin. That in sin, each one of us is disposed primarily to look after ourselves, to look after our own desires, and not, uh, not our obligations to God or to our neighbor. Commentators point out that for, for an estate owner like this, the estate-owning family, for one of the sons to take such a significant portion and leave was, a, was something that would tear at the very fabric of the community. Because a, a, an estate like this would have provided work and resources and food for, a, for an extended village that most of the people in the village probably worked in some way related to this piece of property. And so for them to keep it together was not only good for their family, but it was good for their wider community. It was necessary for it. In, uh, in Israel at the time, the, the ideal was, even though the sons had a right to divide property, the ideal was that they would live together on the property even after their father's passing in order to keep the wealth together, in order to continue to pr uh, provide for the village, to provide for their community. So I Psalm 133, uh, a psalm that we've, we've read before in prayer, uh, starts with how good and blessed it is when brothers live together in unity. That it's good for the family and it's good for the community when brothers stay together, when they get along and they provide. And so this son's sin uh, was a lashing out at his father and was a tearing at the fabric of this community and what held it together. And that's still what sin is. That's how sin works in human relationships and in, in our relationship with God, is that it's always relational. Sin is not primarily about the bad things that we do. It's not about the rules that we break, although it shows in those ways. That sin is fundamentally relational. It's a tear in the relationship. It's a tear in our relationship with God and our relationship with our neighbors. You know, it's easy to see this when other people do it very often. It's easy to see sin uh, when it's dramatic and when it's displayed in others. One of the places that I think that we as a society, a society that's largely lost the language of sin publicly, one of the places that we all agreed, yeah, that guy's a sinner, was, do you remember the story of Martin Shkreli? Have you ever seen the picture of Martin Shkreli? He's, uh, he's a young man, uh, probably about my age, who took over and purchased a major pharmaceutical company. And when he became the, the, the owner of this pharmaceutical company, he took an AIDS drug, a drug that AIDS patients needed for their health, that was valued, uh, currently available at about $4 a pill. And he raised the price to $750 a pill. And he was all over the news for this. Um, his answer was, look, it's, it's just economics. It's supply and demand, right? If I, if I can charge $750, I should. Right? I should be able to charge whatever I want. If you've ever seen the picture of this guy, he has just a, is a, 
a very punchable face. He just looks, he looks like a guy who would charge AIDS patients $750. Um, he has this smirk to him. He stood, he was called to the Supreme Court and just looked there with this look of absolute condescension on his face through the whole thing. Right, and it's clear that when you look at a guy like Screlly, a society, you know, we, we're not used to using the word sin. Uh, we're not used to lo- using the words evil uh, as a society anymore, anymore. But we could all look at that guy and agree, right? That if, if, if in your arrogance and in your desire for wealth, you, you push down on people and take advantage of people who are already, or it's such a terrible loss, have already endured so much, then that is sin. That is evil. We can see it in Martin Scarelli. But what we're blind to is that the selfishness that lives in him lives in each one of us. That every time we make a decision to advantage ourselves to the disadvantage of those around us, every time we choose our way over and against righteousness and faithfulness to those around us, that it comes out of that same selfish heart. Right, the same selfish heart that I use when I drink the coffee and I finish my cup at the end of the day or at the end of the morning, and instead of rinsing it out and putting it in the, in the dishwasher, right, is there anything worse than when somebody doesn't rinse out their coffee cup and then it gets the permanent stain in it, right? And I just leave it there waiting for somebody else to come after me because my time is more va- valuable than theirs, right? That same selfishness that leads me to do that is the same animating selfishness that's led to the most evil acts in the history of the world. It's the same sense that what I want, my priorities, my time, my life, matters more than my neighbors. It matters more than others. It's the same selfishness. And so the son, acting out on his selfishness, takes what's his, and he goes into a far country. He leaves Israel and goes into Gentile lands, And it says, there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. You know, we all enter into sin thinking that that it's going to lead us to life and freedom, right? The reason that temptation grabs us is because it's tempting, right? Because we look at something that we don't have, we look at what we want, we look at a life free of God's constraints, and we think, yes, if I go that way, if I just look out for myself and get what I think I can't live without, then I'll be happy, I'll be free, I'll no longer be constrained by life in my father's house. What the son finds as he gets out there is that sin is always dehumanizing. That sin always makes false promises to us. It always leads us out with this desire and this feeling that it's going to offer us something. And in the end, we just come up empty. Right? Jeremiah 2 says that, that God's people in sinning, in, in abandoning God, commit two sins. We abandon the spring of living water. We abandon our true source, and then we go and we dig out for ourselves broken cisterns that can't hold water. So we take what God could have given us, life and joy and fullness, and we go out seeking those things elsewhere. And then we end up empty. We end up in a drought. We end up there on the floor with the pigs longing for something. You know, sin is like, uh, is like Lucy and Charlie Brown. 
right? She always convinces Charlie Brown that she's going to let him kick the football, right? And then every time he gets there and she pulls the ball away and he swings and misses and he falls down and he's surprised every time, right? That's how sin works in our lives, right? It promises us something, right? If I just could have that relationship, if I could have that substance, if I could have that feeling of, of love and affirmation, if I could have that wealth, if I could have that success, then I'd be happy. And so we go and we kick with all our might at it. And then we end up empty. We end up without. We end up um, miserable. Sin always leads to misery every time. Some of you have, have been down this road in your life. Right? Some of you know what it is to seek out life on its own terms. Whether through uh, your desire to make something of yourself out in the business world. Or maybe through... Maybe through addictions. Maybe you thought that if you could get high enough and escape the pain that you were in, and it just got a hold of you and it hooked you, then what does it end up doing? It dehumanizes you. It ends up leaving us empty. Some of you have learned that through hard experience. You've been where the prodigal is. There, and you look around yourself one day, and you say, man, I'm empty. Others of you may be right there right now, and you don't realize it. Right? There's all kinds of reasons why we get miserable in life. Right? Sometimes we have depression. Other times we have disappointments and broken dreams. There's all kinds of reasons that we experience pain. But sometimes when we experience pain, sometimes it's because we're finally realizing that, that there's no life where we've been chasing it. Right? You've been trying to make your life work on your own and you're miserable. It could be that what God's doing and what he's saying to you in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your dissatisfaction, in the midst of your misery, is that it's time to come home. That it's time to turn your heart back towards the home that you left when you set out for life on your own terms. And it's time to return to your father. So verse 17, it says, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough? And yet I perish here with hunger. I will go and arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In this moment, the son is starting to turn back to his father. But he's not quite there. This is the beginnings of something. But this falls far short of what God calls us to. The God, God calls us to repentance which is when we realize the emptiness of our life in sin, to turn our heart away from that sin and to turn towards him and to receive grace, to receive reconciliation and restoration to the Father. But that's not what the son's doing here. This is just survival. This is him realizing, hey, I'm pretty miserable. In my father's house, even the hired servants are treated better than this. I'm going to go back and I'm going to bargain my way back and to be treated, to being treated as a hired servant. It's really a pretty good plan. He's not asking to be restored to the family. He's not even asking to be brought back as a household slave who would have lived with the family, who would have had to reconcile with his father and reconcile with his brother. He just wants to be a hired hand. Uh, in this economy, a hired hand was like a seasonal laborer, somebody who could live, with the, live within the village, go in and do work, make a decent paycheck, and then go back out and live somewhere else. So it's really an attempt to, to deal with some... He would have had to deal with some of his shame. He would have had to deal with some of his embarrassment in front of the villagers, all of whom would have known his story. But he wouldn't have had to deal with the father. 
in the same way, and he wouldn't have had to deal with his brother. He could have just lived on the periphery. And, you know, honestly, I think this is how a lot of us begin our movement back. A lot of us, we look at our lives and we go, you know what, I've been sinning and I'm miserable. I've tried it on my own terms and it's terrible, so I'm going to get right with God. I'm going I'm to clean up my act. I'm going to start going to church. Um, I'm going I'm to make this up to him. And if I can put enough good things on the good side of the ledger, eventually maybe he'll forget about the bad side of the ledger and we'll be cool. And so he goes back to his father. And then in what has to be one of the most beautiful pictures of grace, anywhere, The father moves with compassion when he sees him. He sees him while he's still a long way off. He sees him when he's still a long way off. You know, to see someone when they're still a long way off means that you are looking for them. It means that you are looking. We don't know how long the son was away. We don't know if it was days. We know it was was longer than days. We know it was long enough for a famine to come in. Months, maybe years. And we have a father who never stopped looking, who never stopped scanning the horizon for that first sign of his son coming home. And when he sees him still a long way off, it says he runs out to him. He runs out to him and embraces him. Think about what the father knew that the son was walking into. He was walking his way back into a village that he had humiliated himself in the midst of. He had done what was anathema in the Jewish community, which is what he had taken Israelite wealth and squandered it and wasted it and given it to the Gentiles. And now he came back with nothing, an ashamed and disgraced son. When he began to walk into the village, he would have been walking into shame. He would have been walking into a group of people who were looking and pointing their fingers and laughing and sneering to themselves. He would have been absolutely embarrassed. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever known that shame? Have you ever known what it feels like to be exposed, to be caught in the midst of your embarrassment, in the midst of that thing you thought you could keep hidden? And here's the son exposed before the village. And the father says, no, not my son. And he runs out into the village, and he takes him and he embraces him. The village would have been looking to the father to to cue, how do we relate to this boy? How do we handle him? How do we treat him? Everybody would have been expecting. We know um, through archaeologists' work and sociologists' work that there was a ceremony called the kazaza ceremony. Great word. (laughs) And what what a father would do in a kazaza ceremony was he would take a pot and he would smash it in front of his son as if to visualize saying, you are dead to me. As much as this pot is shattered and dead to me, you are dead to me and done. And instead of doing that symbolic action, what does he do? He runs to his son. We're told that that wealthy, respectable men in this world did not run. They never picked up their robes around their waist and ran. Aristotle, the great philosopher, says in one of his works that great men never run in public. Great men never run in public. Yeah, that's why I don't do it either. Um, but, But great men never embarrass themselves like this. And yet he does. He embarrasses himself. He takes shame onto himself. 
And then he embraces the son. This is an embarrassing act for the father. To show this kind of emotion, it says he kept kissing him over and over. This is the father being made a fool of in front of everyone who's watching, saying, I'll take your shame. I'll take it and I'll cover it. It's in this moment that the the son finally has genuine repentance. He says, now I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then he stops. His bargaining is done. He doesn't now, he doesn't hatch his plan to work his way back. He just repents. He says, I've sinned. And he rests in that loving embrace of his father. The father clothes him in the best robe, which would have been the father's robe. This would have been taking his very best robe and laying it on his son. This is taking his shoes, it's taking the ring of sonship and putting it back on him. This is him restoring the son to full sonship. Not a slave, not a servant, but a son. In telling this story, Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms, this is what's happening in my ministry. My love, my ministry, what's going to lead me to my cross is the father running towards you taking your shame on himself to embrace you in his love. That's what's happening in my life and in my ministry. Will you rest in it? Will you receive it? Will you you allow the Father to embrace you? But remember, there's two sons. Up to this point, this story differs only in details from the lost sheep and the lost coin. Up till this point, it's just the same story of something lost that at great expense to the one who lost it is now found. It's just painted more vividly. But remember, there's another son. There's another son. And while the the father uh, throws a party, he kills a fatted calf, which most of us have never killed a, a calf, fatted or skinny. But we're told that a a prime calf like this would clearly be enough to feed the entire village. And so he is throwing a party. This is a, a party that the whole neighborhood is invited to. And as the older son comes in from the fields at the end of the day, he would have started to smell that unmistakable smell of roasted meat. Everybody knows when you're having a barbecue. Right? When, when Chip fired up the barbecue across the street for the block party uh, a few months ago, people could just smell it coming. You, can, you, feel it when you, you smell it when you pull off I-10. You can smell barbecue. So the older son starts to walk in, and he smells it. And then he starts to hear the voices of, of singing, and he starts to hear music. And he says, this can only mean one thing. There's only one thing that would prompt my father to throw this kind of party. That jerk of a brother must have come back. That idiot that left us, I knew that soft-hearted, stupid old man, as soon as, the, as soon as that son came back to take advantage of him, I knew what he would do. That naive sucker would throw a party for him, and he'd welcome him back, and he'd give him more, but not me. Not me. Because I've been here that whole time that he was out there running around, that whole time he was burning through his inheritance. You know what I was doing? I was working, and I was saving, and I was building something. So y'all laugh it up. Enjoy your barbecue. Get get fat and happy, but not me. I'm not going in. And so the father, for the second time in one day, 
is willing to embarrass himself. He's willing to bring shame onto himself. He leaves this party that he's throwing. And again, he runs out to embrace a son. Again, he moves out in his love to embrace his son, this time his older son. But the son says, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, and you never gave me a young goat, which was nothing compared to the calf that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice, not this brother of mine, when this son of yours comes home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. By the way, he, this is the first time in the story prostitutes are mentioned. right? Isn't this just like the tattletale older, older brother that says, you know where that money went, Dad. You, you know he spent it on prostitutes. Now the that seems to be stuck with the younger brother. Even when you see paintings of him, he's always with prostitutes, thanks to his tattletale older brother. You killed the fattened calf for him. What this son reveals, remember we said sin is always relational. Sin is not so much a breaking of the rules as it is a breaking of the father's heart. It's a breaking of relationship. And what Jesus is saying here is that there's two ways to break relationship with God. There's two ways to run away from your father. You can do it in the obvious way that everybody can see, like the younger brother, or you can stay home with a cold and bitter heart. What he says is, every day I've worked for you. Every day I've slaved away from you, and you've not given me what I deserve. He shows that he didn't work out of love for his father. He didn't serve out of joy in the presence of his father. He was working in order to get his father's stuff. His speech is just as permeated with me, my, mine, the demands of selfishness. And so there's a way of sinning against God. There's a way of running away from our Father and breaking His heart that can look very, very righteous, that can look very, very good, but it's actually an attempt to use God. It's actually an attempt to, through our self-righteousness, through our pride, through our arrogance, through our goodness, to get something from God. And this version of life with God is just as sinful as the younger brother and his prostitutes. It breaks the father's heart just as much. In fact, it may be worse because the younger son finally melts into his father's arms and receives grace. But the older brother, the story ends without us knowing what happens. We don't see him in the father's arms. We don't see him enter into the party. We don't know what happens with the older brother. That there's something about this, this pride in his heart that won't let him enter into the Father's love, that won't let him celebrate grace. Unmistakably, this brother is to be identified with the Pharisees and the religious people in Jesus' world. Right? This is the punchline of all of these stories, is that you, you guys who are grumbling against these sinners coming in, the, the punchline is that you're lost too. In fact, you may be more lost, and your hardness to grace, your grumbling against them only makes you more lost. Flannery O'Connor put it this way, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us, and the change is painful. There's something in us that bucks against grace, that doesn't want to just rest and admit that we're in need of grace. On the other end of the spectrum, Ricky Gervais, the uh, English 
fairly vulgar comic and one of the more outspoken atheists in our world today. Says this, he says, I never understood redemption when I was young. Even before I was an atheist, I always thought with the prodigal son, well, why is he getting the special treatment? So whether you're, you're self-righteous and you've been in church for years, or maybe for you, this is what kept you away from church for years, is the idea of grace, the idea of people not getting what they deserve, but getting lavish love in spite of what they deserve. Maybe this is what's kept you apart from God. But the truth of this story is that there's only one way for lost sons to come back to God, and it's through grace. There's only one way to relate to God, whether you're an older brother or a younger brother. The only hope uh, is in the embrace of a father who embraces you by grace. But what does this story mean for us in addition to, to that? If you've been standing on the outside, whether running away by older brotherness or younger brotherness, faith means learning to rest in the embrace of God. It's learning to embrace God, the God who embraces you, to hug him back. One commentator describes faith that way, that faith is just learning how to hug God back. It's learning, you ever hug somebody and they're just stiff and it's just awkward and you're like, man, I'm hugging you, but I can tell you don't want to be hugging me. Well, faith is, is, is going from that awkward hug, that feeling that oh, God is moving towards me and he's hugging me and it feels weird. I'm not sure I want anything to do with it. And learning to embrace God back. It's not our embrace that saves us. It's not our embrace that, that gets his embrace. But our embrace is our response. It's our finally going, oh, and resting our head on his shoulder and being embraced by the Father. That embrace gives you a secure basis in your life that, that can give you an identity, that you're the beloved child of God. No longer having to prove yourself through either your goodness or your sin, your badness, but being able just to rest to rest in the love of the Father. Maybe take that prayer home that we used as our prayer of confession and, and use it in your own life. Reflect on it. That that's what it is to be a Christian, is to rest in the righteousness of Christ, to be covered in the robe of your Father, to rest in His presence. And for us as a church, what this means, you know, I love to think of the church as the banquet as the party where the prodigal sons come home and celebrate with their father, where we enter into and receive the joy of God, where we dance with him and enjoy his presence, where we celebrate that what was lost, us, is now found. We've always envisioned and always planned and dreamed that this church would be a church where both the, the wayward younger brothers and the self-righteous older brothers can both find themselves in the father's party where we can both find ourselves in the Father's embrace and we can delight with him. You know what it takes for a church to be like that? Have you ever thought to yourself, I wonder why the church as we know it hasn't experienced widespread revival? Why we haven't seen uh, lost and alienated people come in by the hundreds and by the thousands into our churches? You know why I think it is usually? It's because the church is where the older brother is. Right? Don't you think that at least part of the reason the younger brother left had to be that the older brother was there? Right? Don't you think at least part of the reason that the younger brother said, you know what, I'd be better off on my own, is because of the arrogant, self-righteous, tattletale older brother. He just couldn't stand living with him anymore. Always pointing out what was wrong with him, always bringing it to dad's attention. 
And so finally, he just said, all right, I can't live with these people. I'm gone. And every time that there's been a significant revival in the church, where there's been significant movement of the Spirit towards lost people coming in, the first step has been repentance in the church. It's been renewal in the church. It's been the church saying, you know what? We've been hard-hearted and religious and arrogant. We need the grace of God. We need to recognize just how broken we are and enter into the Father's party. When we loosen up a little bit, maybe the younger brothers will realize there's hope for them too. There's hope for all of us in the Father's banquet. Let's pray. Father, what we most long for uh, is to be at home with you. It is to rest in your loving embrace. It is to find ourselves as your beloved children. And yet, Lord, we run from you. Some of us, uh, we spurn your commands, uh, and we run off seeking life on its own terms, not caring who knows or how it looks. Others of us get self-righteous and smug. We get arrogant and puffed up. But Lord, in your mercy, forgive us, both the younger and the older brothers. Embrace us again in your arms. Cover us again in your robe. Restore us again to your table and at your home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.